Well, if you have a Bible, turn to John 9. John 9 this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at a fascinating story. Um, one, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Um, and to kind of prepare our thinking for where the story is going to go, let me give you a little background on, on somebody you've probably read or heard of her, or at least what she, what she wrote, even though if you don't know her very well. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a prolific songwriter, hymn writer. Her name was Fanny Crosby, and she liked to go by, she liked to be called Aunt Fanny, but we'll call her Fanny Crosby this morning. She was a fascinating, a fascinating uh, woman, Miss Fanny Crosby. They call her the queen of, of gospel songwriting. Uh, she was inducted actually back in the, in the 1970s. She was inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. She wrote, they, they think, between 8,000 and 9,000 songs, hymns. Eight, over 8,000, probably closer to 9,000 hymns she wrote. Um, she wrote, in fact, she wrote so many, there, there weren't a, a ton of hymnals back then. Right now, today, there's all kinds of hymnals, but there weren't very many. And she wrote so many hymns, she started uh, writing hymns under pen names because she didn't want her name showing up that often in the hymnals. And so she used, they, they, they estimate she used over 200 pen names to write songs. So, I don't even know if, if we know how many songs she wrote because she wrote under different names, not wanting all the credit for all that. She was an ac incredibly accomplished person besides writing songs. She wrote poems. She wrote books. Um, she started uh, inner city uh, ministries to help people who lived on the streets. In fact, that was her passion. She, in her will, she left all what she had left to the, those ministries that, that uh, ministered to people who, who were homeless and and needed needed things in life and so that was kind of the, her passion even be beyond songwriting um, she um, what else she, she was the first woman to ever speak in person to the US Senate no other woman had done that before Fanny Crosby she met presidents she's she was a teacher we can go on and on with Fanny it probably one of the coolest things especially at this time of the year she was a, a relative of Bean Crosby which I found out studying about her. And so just a couple generations later, uh, Bean came along, and they were relatives somehow. That's Fanny Crosby. Well, one of the most amazing th things about her and everything she accomplished in life was she did all that blind. She wasn't blind from birth. Um, and in fact, tomorrow, if you, if you get the grace happenings, there I included a, a, like kind of a biographical sketch of her just of her amazing life, more than I even went into going into this morning. Um, but it, it'll say uh, she didn't lose, this, this article says she didn't lose her sight until she was six weeks old. Uh, she had some kind of a uh, sickness as a child, as an infant, and uh, the doctor, their regular doctor was out of town, so this like substitute doctor was trying to help take care of her, and she had some inflammation of the eyes, so he put on this like mustard paste stuff that ended up blinding her. Um, and, and the biographies say she, she cried, she screamed, but the doctor said, no, leave it on there, and, and it ended up blinding her for life. So everything she accomplished from six weeks on, she was totally blind. And 
uh, in one of her biographies, she tells about a, a pastor coming to her one time, a well-meaning pastor, I'm sure. And he said, I, I think it's a great pity, the pastor said to her, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. And Fanny, Aunt Fanny's response was, do you know that if at birth I had been given the ability to make one request, I would, it would have been that I would be born blind. She said, because when I get to heaven, the first face that, I shall, ever, that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. That's gonna, that was, well, she's passed away, so that's happened, but that's pretty cool that the first face that you see would be Jesus Christ. And that, she said that would have been my prayer. Well, the truth is we're all born with some kind of disability. Um, and we all know ourselves, and, and, and certainly we all have physical disabilities and defects because of sin. But what I'm talking about this morning is even more important than that, and that's spiritual, a spiritual defect that we're all born with. We're all born sinners. When, when you're born, when Adam sinned, from then on, he passed down to every generation that would follow, including us, kind of a broken DNA where there's sin, there's sin inbred in us as human beings. It's in our DNA. And as we, we're doing this series, Close Encounters with Jesus, and, and one of the things that we're going to notice as we go through these stories from the Gospels is that Jesus, in his uh, compassion, met physical needs all the time. He, he fed the hungry. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He, he raised the dead. Uh, he, he, all these different kinds of miracles he did out of, out of a heart of compassion. But his mission was to meet spiritual needs. The reason that he came, the reason he was born at Christmas, and the reason that he went to Calvary was not to feed hungry people, but to save people from their sins. That was the mission of Jesus. That was the reason he came, the reason he was on earth. And then out of heart, a heart of compassion, he met their physical needs. But that w- wasn't really why he was here. And our kind of our theme verse this month is John one fourteen. We talked about last week, where where the Word came and He made His dwelling among us. He came and He lived among us for for a while. And we talked about that dwelling being the word tabernacle or tent. And for for a time, for a temporary time, He came and He He lived with us here in this world, in the world that He created. John one tells us. And so we've been looking at what does that what did that look like when he, when He lived among us and He and He. He moved and he breathed and he, he lived among human beings that he created. And so last week we talked about the, the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, in, in her hopeless position in life and the decisions that she had made, how, how Christ came and he met her where she was. And today we're going to look at a story of a guy who was in a helpless situation and how Jesus... Um, came and made his dwelling with, with this guy and, and probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been high on the list of somebody that you would want to come and help. Um, just another, another guy, another guy begging on the streets. And Jesus, he came and made his dwelling with this guy in John 9. So we're going to read through this story. So um, look, at, look at John 9, verse 1, and we're going to read through it, and I'm going to explain a few things as we go along. And then at the end, there's going to be three lessons for us to, to walk away with from this encounter that Jesus had with this man who was born blind. So John, John 9, verse 1. 
Follow along if you would. As he went along, he is Jesus. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? We'll stop, push pause here for a second. Let me explain a few things about the first two verses. Rabbis taught back in, in those days that you could sin in the womb. The babies in the womb could sin. And they get that from the story of Jacob and Esau. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau back in Genesis 25, Rebekah had twins in her, Jacob and Esau, and they fought the whole time. They fought inside. In fact, they were, they were fighting inside of her, and she asked God, like, why, why is this happening to me? And God says, well, actually, you have two nations in you. Jacob was going to be the father of the Jewish nation, and Esau was going to be the father of the Edomites. And he said they're never going to get along. They're going to fight. If you know brothers, um, me and my brother were like that. We weren't twins, but we, we fought all the time. And so that, that on steroids, Jacob and Esau, they're, fight, they're fighting in the womb. In fact, Esau was born first. He was the firstborn. And when he came out of the womb, Jacob was holding on to his heel, like, like, like I'm going to get you. And so so there, there's this fighting started in the womb. And so rabbis taught, thought, that you could sin in the womb because, because of that story. Well, and that, that's not true, but they taught that, so people thought that. The other thing they taught was that sins that parents committed could be what would affect unborn babies, preborn babies. And so parents are really, like, careful not to sin, especially when mom was pregnant, because I, I don't want a punishment to be projected onto my baby. So that's what the rabbis taught. And so that, that was behind the disciples' question. Who sinned? The guy went before he was born or his parents, that he was born blind. And we have to imagine the, the confusion and probably the potential anger in this blind man. Maybe he was bitter at his parents for sinning and causing him to be born blind. You know, if, if he, as rabbis are walking along and they're teaching this, he hears that. And, and maybe he's just like mad at his parents, like, why did you do that? Or maybe he's got guilt because maybe, I, maybe it was me, maybe I sinned. Even before I knew what sin was or what, what right and wrong was, maybe, maybe it was me. So he lived with this guilt. And probably if those things were true, there was an anger at God being unfair, like, like I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. This was somebody else. And so he sat for his whole life on the steps of the temple begging just for, for money, money to eat. And Jesus and the disciples walked by. Another thing we have to imagine is how he felt when he heard the disciples ask that question. Because at this point, he's probably feeling like he's a, he's a science experiment, like he's, a, he's an object lesson. So you got this guy, he, he's sitting and he's begging and, and he's, he's homeless and, he, and, he's, and people would walk by. I wonder what he did wrong. I wonder if it was his parents. And, and when he hears the disciples ask that question, he's probably thinking, here it comes again. The verses, the arguments, the explanations. He, and he's probably thinking, I don't want to hear this again. I was 
studying this this week and thinking about this, and I, and I thought about how sad it is in our day and age. There's still Bible teachers who teach an angry, vindictive God towards his children. That if you're not faithful, if you're not living right, if you're not tithing, God is going to bring some kind of tragedy into your life. And that that caricature of God is a far cry from what we see in Scripture as a God as a kind and loving father who will discipline his children, but it's a discipline out of love. It's not a discipline out of judgment or punishment or anger. And Hebrews 12 tells it, teaches us that, that, that God does discipline his children, but that it's, that it's because he loves us and because he's a good father. And he's, in fact, the writer of Hebrews says you need to be worried if you're not being disciplined because it proves that you're really a child of God. And, and, it, and, and the passage in Hebrews 12 says, and, and discipline, it's not pleasant, but it's for our holiness and it's for our good. And so we might ask the question, like, well, what's the difference? If I'm being punished by God out of anger, if I'm being disciplined, what, it, both are unpleasant. Why, why what the, the, the difference is, is the motivation. Punishment it's, it's like every parent knows the, the, times, the times that you've asked forgiveness for, I'm sure, because I have too, where you disciplined because it was you were inconvenienced or you were angry or you were tired. And that kind, of, that kind of anger and wrath as opposed to when you love your kids so much and you see them heading in a direction or making choices that are, that are not going to be good for them and you discipline them out of love, that's the difference. That's a huge difference, and that's an important difference. And all this guy knew, sitting and begging his whole life, is is this vindic- this angry, somebody did something wrong, and I'm having to pay for it. And so maybe instead of seeing hurting people as theological puzzles to figure out, maybe we need to see hurting people as people that we need to love and try to help as much as we can. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this story. Look at verse 3. Continue with verse 3. Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, he doesn't mean his parents were sinless. He means that they weren't, they weren't the cause and he wasn't the cause of this disability, this, this blindness that this man had. He said, that's not the reason that this man is blind. He said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work, but while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. See, the disciples missed the whole point of what, they, they missed the point they were talking to a, a person, a human being. They saw him as an object lesson for a theological lesson. And, and Jesus says, that's not, that's not the deal here. It's so that I can be glorified. And I can glorify the Father. And notice in verse 4, we talked about this Wednesday night, and we, and this is actually how we, we prayed in preparation for today. Notice in verse 4, there's a really important little two-letter word, W-E, we. Jesus says, as we must do the works of him who sent Who's the we? Jesus and the disciples. And by extension, Jesus and us. Jesus says we need, we need to be, he's including us in that we, we need to be busy about 
doing what we can to serve God and ministering to others. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to go around healing physical disabilities. Those uh, gifts like healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues and uh, raising the dead are called the apostolic gifts that, that, that Jesus and the apostles had, but they passed away when the apostles passed away. So we're not going to go around healing anybody. That, that's not a spiritual gift anymore. But we are under the responsibility of showing love and compassion and trying to help people. That's what Jesus is saying here. We must do the works of him who sent me. Looking for ways that we can serve people who have needs. Jesus says that's part of our responsibility. All right, going on with our story. Verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Verse 7, he says, now go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which, which means scent. That's what Siloam means, scent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. Okay, begs the question this story, why did Jesus use mud? Why did he use spit and dirt? To heal this man? That's a good question. I'll tell you why. The, well, I'll tell you the answer to the question is we don't know. No, We don't know why Jesus used mud and why he used spit and dirt. A couple commentaries, just to give you a couple things to think about. One commentary said that uh, since man is made of clay, of dirt, Jesus was showing that the reason for our spiritual blindness is our, our sinful humanity. So it was a lesson about this is why you, you're spiritually blind because you're made out of dirt. I don't, I don't know. Another commentary, and I thought this one was more interesting. This commentary said that the church fathers believe, some of the church fathers believe, that in essence what Jesus did was he made the man new eyes. And they get that from Genesis 2-7 where the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And so he was making new eyes out of the mud. And the truth is we have no idea. We don't know. Those, those might be right. Those might be wrong. We, we, don't, we don't know why he did. But we know he did. We know he spit in the dirt and he made mud. And he put the mud on the guy's eyes. He went and washed and he was healed. An interest, an interest, another interesting point about these verses here, um, 6 and 7. Interesting note. Jesus often gives people something to do as a way of exercising their faith. If you, know, if you read through the Gospels and, and miracles that Jesus did, oftentimes there's now go, your, go show yourself to the priest. Now take up your bed and walk. Now go wash at the pool of Siloam. And it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that they were to do that healed them. Jesus is the one who did the healing. But they were given something to do to show that they had faith that Jesus could heal them. An interesting thing, because he could have just he could have just healed the guy, but he wanted the guy to know that there's faith involved here, believing that Jesus can do what he what he says he can do, and the same thing goes for us today. We believe if if we had a show of hands, we we would believe that God still saves people. How many believe that God still saves people? And God and Jesus says, okay, now go tell somebody about me. Now, he could just save them, right? If he wanted to, he's God. 
But, he, but, but there's an action involved to show that we believe that he can save people. There's something, and we don't do the saving. We don't have anything to do with saving people, but, we're, but, but it's, a way, uh, it's a step that we can take to show that we believe that he, he does save people. We believe that God can and will meet our financial needs. Another example. And the scripture says, okay, I want you to give sacrificially and generously to the church. Now, God could just choose to meet our financial needs, but there's an action step in there to prove that we do trust that God will meet our needs. We believe that God answers prayer. God knows our prayers and our thoughts even before we do. But he says, I want you to pray continually. There, there's, there's a step that God gives us probably to show ourselves that we do trust God because he already knows us. He, he knows our hearts. But sometimes we don't know our hearts. And so he gives us these steps so that we can, we can remind ourselves, I do trust God answers prayer. I do believe that God still saves people. But God does the work. But he gives us opportunities to put our faith into action. So let's continue on with the story. All right, verse 8. Now, and this, is, this is where it kind of gets funny to me. This is, I think this is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the, the same guy who, who used to sit and beg? Well, some claimed that he was. Another said, no, he only looks like him. Can you imagine how different his countenance looked? His, probably a smile. Like, he probably looked like a totally different person. His, his face did. And, and they go, no. It looks like him, but it's not him. It only looks like him. But he, he himself insisted, no, I'm the guy. Like, like dude, I'm, I'm him. I'm the, I'm the guy you're talking about. It's, it's true. I'm the guy who was blind. Verse 10, then how were your eyes open, they asked. He, probably, he replied, you know, the man they called Jesus, he made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash, to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed it, and then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked. You know, I don't know. He still hadn't seen Jesus, remember, because he's still blind. He went to, somebody probably helped him to the pool of Siloam, and that's where he started. So he he'd never really set eyes on Jesus before. So they're like, well, who, where is he? What's he? I don't know. I don't know where he is. I don't even know what he looks like. Can you imagine the sensory overload in this guy right now, too? Never had, never had seen his hands. Never, maybe when he was at the pool of Siloam and he, he washed, he saw in the reflection his face for the first time. And he saw his neighbors, and he's walking around, and he's like, like that, had, that had to be the most amazing thing to, to, to see for the first time in your life. Verse 13, continuing with the story. So they brought him to the Pharisees, this man who had been born blind. And now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Ding, ding, ding. Something's about to go wrong here. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how, key word there, how he received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and, and now I see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, well, this man, he's not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And others asked, well, 
how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They had a little debate going amongst themselves, the Pharisees. And here's the thing. It, it was against the Pharisees' teaching to work on the Sabbath, which is okay. It's, that's what the law says. But they, the Pharisees were famous for adding on more layers. So they considered making mud work. Because you were, there was some, you, here, literally, the, uh, the books say you could spit as long as you spit on a rock because you're not making anything. But if you spit in the dirt, you're making mud, so you're breaking the Sabbath. I know. But that was, that was the, so, so they already had it out for Jesus anyway. So this was an opportunity just to discount him and who he was and his ministry. And he said, that this guy can't be from God because he's not keeping our rules. This miracle, this amazing miracle is done, is done, and all they can think of is their, their extra rules and their regulations, their traditions. And the thing is, like I just mentioned, they had already made up their mind that they, they needed to get rid of Jesus, that, they were, that he was a fraud, or they, they weren't going to let people believe that he was really the Messiah. And I think, here's, what I, here's why I think that. I think because they, if to give give them their due, the Pharisees they do they knew the law, they knew the prophecies. You know, remember Paul, Saul, like they they knew their stuff. Now they didn't believe it or they didn't understand it, but they knew what they and they knew that the Messiah, when he came, was going to be able to do some pretty amazing things. Let me give you a couple verses that show that Isaiah thirty-five, verses four through six, the prophecy says, "Be strong." Don't fear. God's going to come. He will come, and he will come with a vengeance, which maybe made them a little nervous. With a divine retribution, he will come and to save you, to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. They knew the prophecies. So maybe they were starting to get a little nervous that their gig was about up. Like, they, they were... They were intoxicated with power and influence and being in charge. And they thought, we can't, we can't let this guy take this away from us. Maybe. So, okay, on with the story. Verse 17. So then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, <laughs> this is where it's funny. First time in his life anybody cared what this guy said. He's a beggar, he's blind, and, and this wasn't like in the 1800s, 1900s where you could go to school, you could be accomplished and be presidents. You were, you were a, an outcast of society when you were disabled like this guy. Even your family a lot of times didn't have anything to do with you, as we'll see here in a second. And so the first time in his life, he's feeling kind of important. The, 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 the power group of Israel, the Pharisees, the ones who, who called all the shots, are around you. You're this guy who ne- nobody ever cared what you said or thought in your whole life, and now you're in the middle of them, and they say, what do you think? I think he's a prophet, <laughs> he says. I think he's a prophet. Verse 18, they still didn't believe that he was blind and, and he had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. By the way, he had never seen his parents either. So they called and get his parents. His first time he'd ever seen his mom and dad. Verse nineteen: Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? 
His parents replied, well, we know he's our son. The parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. It was, it was no small thing to be put out of the synagogue. It meant basically that you were excommunicated from Jewish life. Because in the synagogue and in the outer courts is where business was done, trade was done, where fellowship was, where worship was. It, it was everything in Jewish life. Like, you, and you were kicked out of that. You were excommunicated from, from everything. So instead of going to bat for their son, they throw him under the bus, basically. Verse 24, a second time, they summon the man who had been blind. And they say, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man's a sinner. This is, uh, this is what they call coaching the witness. They know what they want this man to say, so they're helping him out a little bit. They say, they say a wink and a nod, you know, say the right thing here. Give glory to God. We, we, we all know that guy, he's a sinner. He replied, the blind man replied, the healed blind man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do? How? There's that question again. How did he do it? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> it's like, boom. And then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We knew it. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, you know what? This is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He, he's teaching, he's preaching to these spiritual leaders. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he can do nothing. And to this they replied, you are steep in sin at birth. In other words, you're guilty of what we teach. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. I think the, the prologue to this story is the most beautiful part of the story. And this is where we see, not only we've seen the compassion of Jesus, but we see Jesus on mission. We see the heart of why Jesus came, and that was to save people from their sins. And so we see, we're going to see here a simple heart-to-heart -heart conversation where a once blind man receives something way, way, way more precious than physical sight, and that's spiritual sight. He receives eternal life. So in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. Which, by the way, they did him a favor by doing that. They didn't know it. Because if he would have stayed in with that group and got the pats on the back and like, ah, oh, you're awesome, like, he never would have had this conversation with Jesus. The best thing they did for him was to kick him out so that Jesus could have this conversation with him. 
And Jesus, he went and found him, and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so I, I can believe in him. He's still not a, a believer at this point. Verse 37, Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. And I think that's the only proper response coming face to face with the Savior, isn't it? Believing and worshiping. But Jesus ends this story, this encounter with a warning, and it's a dire warning. That those who refuse to believe and worship him are going to come under judgment. Verse 39, Jesus said, and, and to kind of paint the picture here, he's talking with this man who he had healed, and, he, and now is a Christ follower, a believer. But the, the Pharisees are still on the wings. They're still within earshot, and they're still listening, just wanting to catch Jesus in something he's going to say wrong or whatever, try to trap him. So that's kind of the scene here. And Jesus says he's talking to this man, but he knows they're listening. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And that might sound like a riddle to us. I'll explain it here in a second. But the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. Verse 40, and some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what, are we blind too? Are you calling us blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, you're still in your sin. And what Jesus is teaching here is there's a blindness that's worse than physical blindness, and that's spiritual blindness. And to kind of paraphrase what he just taught here, those who think they can see on their own without Jesus are really blind. And those who know they are blind on their own and need Jesus are the ones who can see. So let me, let me give us three quick lessons here to kind of wrap it up. Three lessons for us today. And these are in your bulletin. If you're just like itching, I got to fill in a blank. Okay, here we go. Number one, we can, only, we can see only because Jesus has given us sight. There is, we get zero credit for being able to see spiritually, which means there's no place for pride, there's no place for credit, there's no place for us having anything to do with, with, with Christ giving a spiritual sight. That's why when you're witnessing, the best thing that you can say is, here's what, like this, like this guy said, Here, here's what he did for me. Here's what he did for me. I might not have all the answers. In fact, what he said is, is a great template for us to follow when we're talking to others about Jesus because they're going to ask us questions we don't know the answers to. And it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know. But, but, but here's what I do know. I was lost. I was a sinner. I was on my way to hell, and he saved me. And the only reason I can see is because Jesus gave me sight. And, there, and, no, and in the story, we'll get, get to this here in a second, there's only two kinds of people in the world, and there's only two kinds of people in the story, the seeing and the blind, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. There's no third category. 
And it's only because of the grace of God and only because of what Jesus has done for us that we are in the category of we can see. We've been healed spiritually. We can see only because Jesus has given us sight. Point number two is we need to be busy about shining Christ's light to the world. I don't know if you ever thought about sharing your faith this way, but we are in the worshiper recruitment business. That's what you are. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're in the worshiper recruitment business. Because the life that's what the life of a Christian is, is a worshiper of God. And that's what evangelism is, is trying to get more worshipers. That's, that's what evangelism is. It's not another notch in our belt or another, hey, we can raise our hand. Hey, I let somebody... That's all well and good, but really at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're, there's another person who's going to worship God now. That's what, we're, that's what evangelism is. That's what disciple-making is, is. I want another person praising God. I want another worshiper. And so, like Jesus said in verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works. We must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. We have this narrow window called life where we have this opportunity to share this good news so people can receive spiritual sight and become worshipers of God. And so we need to be busy about doing good works and, and serving people and loving people and help out of hearts of compassion, leading us to our mission of making disciples, worshipers. All this reminded me of, of a verse in Matthew 5. Jesus was, was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify, praise, worship your, your Father in heaven. If you think there's no connection between serving others and loving others and opportunities that we have to, to love people in our community and, and evangelism, that's not what Scripture teaches. There's a connection here. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, Jesus said, so that they can worship God. And so whatever that looks like in your life, we need to be busy about that. We need to be busy about shining Christ's light to the world, showing people that we're different, that we do have hearts of compassion. One way we're doing that collectively, corporately as a church, is, is our food drive this month, which we do every year, table down in the coat room. There's... Ten families in this community that have physical needs right now, and so as a church, we're saying, "Hey, let's let's pull our resources and let's be a blessing. Let's let our light shine to these families." And so we'll we'll give them food, and we're going to deliver it on the nineteenth, and we're going to pray with them, and we're going to give them tracts, and we're going to give them the gospel, we're going to give them invitation, all those things too. But we're also going to let our good deeds shine. And it's interesting in this story and a lot of other stories in the Gospels, Jesus met physical needs before he met spiritual needs. And again, he could have done it any way he wanted. But I think part of the reason for the, is the example to us, hey, this is part of the, the package of being a Christ follower, is we need to have hearts of compassion for people as well. So we need to be busy. And if you notice, there's the dot, dot, dot. We need to be busy about shining Christ's light to this world, dot, dot, dot. Point number three, because spiritual blindness will receive judgment. You ever been working out in the yard, working outside on some kind of project on a summer day, 
And out in the west, you see it's starting to get dark. You ever, you ever been there? You, you people who like working in the yard, and you're like, oh, I got to get this done. I got, and you know it's coming. You know that there's a storm coming, and so you start working a little faster, and you and you call, hey, give me a hand. We got to get this done before the rain starts and the storm comes. And there's a storm coming. It's called the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And we need to be busy busy about shining Christ's light because people who who don't know Christ, there's going to be judgment. They're going to receive judgment. And we're surrounded every day with people who are in that situation where they don't yet know the Savior, Jesus Christ. They think they do. They think they can see spiritually. They think they're okay because they're better than so-and-so and because Grandma whatever, you know, all the stories people have, but they've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. And we're surrounded every day with people like that who are just feeling their way through life because they are spiritually blind. And they touch something and they think, well, that feels good. That feels like it's, it's, it's something that will help me. And it's not. It's, unless it's Jesus Christ, they're still lost. And our hearts need to break for people like that. And if there's any kind of judgmentalism or any kind of pride or any kind of arrogance on our part, that's sin. Our hearts need to break for people who don't yet know Jesus. And so let me this morning, let me bring it back around this morning to the story and, and two of the main characters in the story. It's, it's the man who was healed and the Pharisee. And the reason I want to end with this is, like I mentioned earlier, there's only two kinds of people in the world, and there's only two kinds of people in the story. And so my question for you this morning, was there a point where you knew that you were spiritually blind? Like the man who was healed, he knew that he was helpless. That's a good place to be spiritually. And, when, and it's when we confess our sin and we know that we have no hope on our own, that's when God can save us. Or are you like the Pharisee who thinks his resume and his track record and his, his knowledge is going to somehow count for something when he stands before God? And Jesus makes clear at the end of the story that it's not. You're still in your sin. We talk, we talk with this series, we talk about the, kind of the theme here is Christ came and made his dwelling among us. Praise team, if you guys want to come up, we're almost done. And the reason I, I chose it, and there's, there were dozens of stories I could chose for this series. But like last week where we saw that we see the Samaritan woman and, and the hopeless situation that she was in, this, this week we see a man who was in a helpless situation. No support. Even his parents had basically disowned him. And by the end of the story, the rest of the Jewish culture had disowned him. And it's a really good place to be at the end of our rope where we, where we look up to God and say, God, I need your help. 
I, I am helpless. And the, the song that we're going to close with, we, we sang last week, and this is, this is our theme song for the month, O Come All You Unfaithful. Because I think sometimes we put ourselves in the category of the Pharisee where we, if we're faithful, if we're good, if we're doing everything right, then, then that will earn me favor with God. When exactly, actually, it's the exact opposite's true. It's where we say, God, I need your help, and I am unfaithful, and I am a sinner. And so as we sing this song this morning, let me encourage you, if, if you're still in the category of the Pharisee, where on the outside, everything looks good, and if anybody had to guess, they would guess, you know what, they're right with God, and you know in your heart, you're not. And don't roll the dice on that because spiritual blindness is going to receive judgment. And today is the day of your salvation. So if you don't know Christ as Savior, make today the day that you do receive your spiritual sight. And if you've done that already, remind yourself singing this song that it's only because of Jesus what he's done for me. Because Christ came. He was born for me. He went to the cross for me. So if you would, let's stand and we'll sing.